God's people see the grace of God running through the whole of our history from eternity past right through to eternity future. From our election in eternity past to our eventual revelation when we appear in heaven as the sons and the daughters of God in glory, as Peter indicates in 1 Peter 5 and verse 12, we stand only by virtue of the true grace of God. Charles Hatton Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher in the late 1800s, he penned a book, and it was entitled, All of Grace. And really, that sums up the experience of all the children of God and of God's salvation. It is all of grace. At no point can you or I press pause along the journey, have a look around us, look to what we have done in the past, and flag up a spiritual action and boast, I did that. I earned that, or I deserved that. I call in testimony of Ephesians 2, the verse 8 and 9, very familiar verses. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And here we are being eliminated here in terms of our effort, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Henry Mahon, pastor of 13th Street Baptist Church in Ashland, Kentucky, now dead, he died in 2019, he said, and it's a wonderful little set of thoughts here, it is covenant grace that chose us, 2 Timothy 1 and 9, it was invincible grace that pursued us, Galatians 1 and 15, whenever we were running away from God, no desire after Him. It was a case of almighty grace, arrest that man, and it did. It was invincible grace. It was redeeming grace that saved us, Ephesians 2 and verse 8, just read. It is persevering grace that keeps us, Philippians 1 and verse 6. So again, the emphasis is all on grace, the grace of God. I like the way in which Philip Doddridge and Augustus Toplady, and they came together, preachers, to write a hymn. The two of them contributed to the one hymn, and they're highlighting in that hymn the central role that grace plays in God's operations here upon the earth. It was sung by Helen this morning. Grace first contrived a way to save rebellious man, and all the steps that grace displayed, which drew the wondrous plan, grace first inscribed my name in God's eternal book. T'was grace that gave me to the Lamb who all my sorrows took, saved by grace alone. This is all my plea. Jesus died for sinful men, and Jesus died for me. Now, much of the religious world around us, in one degree or another, they declare that salvation is accomplished not by grace, but by the will of man, through the worth of man, by the work of man. But God's Word declares salvation is by the will of God alone. It is through the worth of Christ 
alone. It is brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit alone. In other words, back to the starting point, it is all of grace. Now, this morning, in essence, I'm going to give you my own confession of faith, that which I believe and also preach, because this is what I've experienced. It's my doctrine. It's been the backbone of my preaching right from the beginning, and I'm more thoroughly convinced of it now than I have ever been. It is the doctrine of the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster, too. But most importantly, it is the teaching of Holy Scripture. And on these points, there can be no compromise. Now, let the Arminian come along and call me divisive or mean-spirited because I tenaciously hold to these particular things. Let them do it if they please in teaching these truths. I'm not looking for man's approval, but God's. 1 Corinthians 4, the verse 1 to 5, briefly, here is what I am believing. Grace is indispensable. We absolutely need it because of man's sinful nature. Also, we believe that God is sovereign in every aspect of the salvation of His people. And another layer of truth, those who are genuinely saved will also be kept by the power of God. Now, that's the summary. And what that really is, is what theologians have styled over the years, for many, many centuries now, they have styled them the doctrines of grace, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism. Over the centuries, a lot has been said and written about these five points. Many books have been churned off printing presses, extolling or even opposing this particular view. And they're often presented under the traditional vocabulary of tulip, as in T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace and pain, the perseverance of the saints. So we come to tulip, which is a memory device to help us work our way through these things. Personally, I prefer another acronym. And the one that I would prefer is the term gospel. Grace, that's the G in gospel, is obligatory. We absolutely need it. It is sovereign, dispensed by God alone. It is provision-making, provides for all that we need. It is efficacious, and that is, it absolutely works without fail, and it is lasting. And so we have, under the five points of Calvinism here, the term gospel led off by grace. And that's how we're going to examine it here this morning. So, first of all, grace is obligatory, and we're talking about total depravity when we mention that. Grace is obligatory. We cannot do without it, not a single one of us. Why? Because all men and women, by nature, we are totally depraved. We all know what happened. The Bible tells us what happened in the Garden of Eden, how sin entered there. Adam and Eve yielded to temptation. They fell for the devil's alluring promise that you'll receive a big boost in your knowledge. You'll be head and shoulders above anybody that comes after you. 
if you just go the devil's way. And so in that garden, Adam and Eve shattered the one prohibition that God had placed upon them not to eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And with that rebellion of theirs, sin smashed its way into the world. In the wake of sin comes sorrow. And now, as Romans 8 and 22 describes it, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Tumbling along like opening an accordion here, we have got after sin, death, and destruction, and we've got disease. And not only disease, we've got damnation. You can add that to These were the ingredients thrown into the mix once man sinned in that garden. Because of man's rebellion against God's law, Adam and all of his descendants have been separated from God ever since. Genesis 3, verse 8 to 10, 23 and 24. A curse lies upon the ground. Genesis 3, 17 and 18, Romans 8 and 22. And death has been, because of their sin, introduced into the world. Genesis 3, 19, Genesis 5 and 5. And just as that process of decay was triggered, in Adam and Eve's body, so that from this moment on, they began to die physically. So the entire spiritual constitution of man was affected by the fall. Man became depraved in his mind, in his heart, in his will, in his actions. Now, of course, man doesn't own that description at all. In fact, man has a very high view of himself. But God takes that view away down in Romans 3, verse 10 to 12. And God says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And despite society with its shrill cry saying, God, you've got it wrong. No, he hasn't. He as always is complete. Completely right. And that same passage in the Bible goes on to show how man's throat and his tongue and his lips and his mouth and his feet and his eyes all suffer from this depravity. In other words, from head to toe, this depravity affecting all of us, it is total. And Isaiah 1 verse 5 and 6 emphasizes that from the head of the foot. From the head right down to the foot. There is no soundness in it. This doctrine of man's original sin, total depravity, it doesn't, and I put in a bit of a cautionary note here, it doesn't mean that every single man and woman out there in society, ourselves included, it doesn't mean that we are as sinful or as corrupt as we could be. God will not allow man in this world to be as wicked in deed all the time as he is in heart. But if you're looking for evidence of total depravity in action, think of the way the terrorism was gone. The Twin Towers, for example, in 9-11 in America, the Balai night spots that were bombed as well, the Madrid train bombing back in 2004, London's underground train network in 2005. Or let's really update it, bring it right up to date, and think of Hamas and their ravaging and rampaging through southern Israel on the 7th of October of this year, 2023. The net result is that thousands of people 
Many in the prime of life, husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and daughters and sons and sisters and brothers were swept out into eternity. And it still is happening. What terrible evil. And though we might say, well, none of us would ever contemplate committing an act on the scale of that which was performed by those terrorists, we have to realize that the evil that motivated them does lie in all of our hearts. Men by nature are spiritually dead, morally depraved, lost under the curse of God, and completely incapable of changing our condition. And the Bible tells us that again and again. Psalm 51 and 5, Psalm 58 and 3, Jeremiah 13, 23, the hardest deceitful of all things, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17 and 9, Romans 5 and 12, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Let me give you an illustration. When Adolf Eichmann, the infamous Nazi war criminal, director of Hitler's final solution, was captured and tried for his heinous offenses at the end of World War II, one old Jewish man who had been in the court during Eichmann's trial, he came out trembling from that court. He was asked if it was the sight of that hideous monster Eichmann that had shaken him. But he brushed that aside and he said, No, the reason behind my great shock is that Adolf Eichmann looked just like any other typical grandfather. Consider a list of eight effects of Adam's fall upon the human race, all of which are true of every man and woman by nature. Man cannot. Due to his sin, total depravity, he cannot see the kingdom of God, John 3 and 3. He cannot understand the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2 and 14. He cannot do anything pleasing to God, Romans 8 and 8. He cannot hear the word of God, John 8 and 43. He cannot receive the spirit or the truth of God, John 14, 17. He cannot come to by himself, the Son of God, John 6 and 44. He cannot call Jesus Lord, 1 Corinthians 12 and 3. And he cannot... Cannot believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, John 12, 39 and 40. Man is so far away from God that he cannot get back to God. The only way is for God in grace to bring him back. Saul of Tars is one prime example. Saul's going in the opposite direction. Not looking for grace, he's breathing out threatening and slaughter against the church of Jesus Christ. But God steps into his life, puts him on the opposite track, spins him around. God's grace changed him. Total depravity means that you cannot be saved by your free will, for your will is not free anymore. Since Adam's fall in the garden, the will of man has ever and only been inclined towards evil. It's a bias in there. Its bias is towards wickedness. The will of man is not hanging limp in a balanced, free state. It's way on the wicked side of the pendulum. Total depravity as well means that you cannot be saved by your works. Total depravity means salvation has to be of the Lord entirely. A to a Z, 
And if ever I'm to be saved and you are to be saved, then we must be saved by grace alone. Salvation is not determined by me or you. Salvation is not dependent upon me or you. Because we are sinners, we all deserve God's everlasting wrath in hell. We are justly condemned, and unless God steps in and saves us by His almighty grace, we will forever die. That's the bad news. That's what makes grace obligatory. We cannot do without it. But here's the good news. Grace is not only obligatory, grace is sovereign. We're into the realm of unconditional election here. Grace is sovereign. What do we mean by this? Grace being sovereign, unconditional election. We mean this. Almighty God from old eternity chose some of Adam's fallen race to salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And his loving choice of these people was an unconditional. In other words, he didn't see anything in them that should incline him to one and not to the other. It was an unconditional election of grace. We didn't have to rise to a certain level. We didn't have to meet certain criteria for God to choose us. He chose us unconditionally because there was nothing good in us to choose. And I subscribe to the truth that the one true and living God is totally sovereign in all things, including in that realm of the sinners that He chooses to save. The sovereignty of God, that was the great doctrine rediscovered and then reannounced during the Protestant Reformation. The truth that God is supreme ruler of His universe that his rule is unlimited, unrestricted, cannot successfully be opposed. That's what the Reformers taught. Where do they find it in the Word? Well, they find it, for example, in Psalm 135, in verse 6, "...whatsoever the Lord pleased." That did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. They find it as well in Daniel 4, verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Those are words right out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he was that man whom, well, he thought he was so self-important. He was so self-sufficient. He was in complete charge of all of his affairs. And he's pacing along the terrace in the great impressive palace of Babylon. And he's surveying below this wonderful city. And it's full of fascinating architecture. And it's full of bustling commerce. And Nebuchadnezzar, looking at all of that, he says, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar was a magnified little Jack Horner. This world is full of little Jack Horners sitting in corners eating their pies and they stick in a thumb and they pull out a plum and they announce, what a great boy am I. Great boy, you would be nothing were it not for the grace of God. And Nebuchadnezzar discovered that. 
in the eyes of the Most High God, the populations of earth, they are reputed as nothing. He is sovereignly independent of every one, of everything, of all conditions, of every circumstance. He is God. And beside Him, there is no other rival. What lies back of the truth of divine sovereignty is this, that God has His way, and He has always had His way that he is having his way now, even when we don't realize it, can't work it out, can't discern it, he is still having his way. To flesh that out a little, God is the sovereign creator of all things. And I don't need to go any further than right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, in the beginning, God created. Nobody else. God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now tell me, who was counseling God back then? Who was tapping him on the shoulder saying, you need to do this, do it that way, try something else, do it differently? Who was advising him, keeping him right? Nobody. Isaiah 40, verse 13 and 14, Romans eleven thirty four 34 are key texts there, because God is the sovereign creator of all things. Not only that, He is the sovereign ruler of all things. Where do we find that in God's Word? In Romans 8, 28, in Romans eleven thirty six. Famous words, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who were the called according to His purpose. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, before somebody starts objecting to that fact, consider the alternative. If God does not govern everything, then something governs God. And if God is not totally, absolutely, universally sovereign, then we have to arrive at the conclusion that faith in God is nothing much better than just throwing a coin into a wishing well, because if that's true, then no promise of God can be sure, no prophecy from God can be absolute, no pronouncement from God could be believed. But I do believe in the truth of the sovereignty of God, and I am glad my God is on the throne. He's the sovereign creator of all things, sovereign ruler of all things. He is also the sovereign disposer of all things. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. The poet had it right. There's not a sparrow or a worm, but's found in his decrees. He raises monarchs to their thrones and sinks them as he please. This God, I emphasize, who is sovereign in creating the universe, sovereign in ruling over everything that's in it, sovereign in disposing of all things concerning it, is also totally sovereign in the exercise of His saving grace. A common religious fable exists that maintains God loves everyone. He does not. 
Nowhere does the Bible say or imply that he does. And if you want to throw John 3.16 into the mix there, as if that teaches that Christ died for every single man and woman in the world, then consider the fact that the words world and all have various significations in Scripture. The meaning has to be determined every time by the context. For example, in 1 John 3 and 1, there's the word world used, but believers are excluded from the term world in 1 John 3 and 1. Also, Acts 19, 27, John 17, 9, that's another task for another day. The Bible, though, plainly tells us God does not love everyone. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 11 and 5, the Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Psalm 7, 11, God is angry with the wicked every day. Romans 9, 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, of course, we recognize that God is love. We rejoice in that, of course. But God's love is in Christ, in the Bible. There is no assurance of God's love given to anyone anywhere apart from those who were joined by faith to Jesus Christ. In Romans 9, verse 11 through 33, point out the fact that God is totally sovereign in the exercise of His salvation. Brings in the examples of Jacob and Esau and Pharaoh and relevant quotations from Moses and Isaiah and Hosea. And whoever's opposing the doctrine needs to read verse 20 to 24. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hast not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. What of God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles." And in the context of all of that, you could look at John 5, 21. Jesus said, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth who? Whom he will. It's all about his purpose, his plan. Isaac Watts asked this question in one of his hymns. May not the sovereign Lord on high dispense his favors as he will, choose some to life while others die, and yet be just and gracious still. The one true living God is totally sovereign in all things. And so Almighty God, from old eternity, He chose some of Adam's fallen race to salvation and to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And His loving choice of these people was an unconditional election of grace. I know some people stagger all over the shop at this kind of truth. That God could elect to people whom He gave to His Son in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world. 
and that God could elect them freely and not because of any good work that he saw in them or any good thing that he could foresee looking down the tunnel of time they am actually doing. But hear how it is presented in the Bible. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 and 14, We are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you, the ones he had chosen, he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 15, 16. What could be simpler? Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. God Almighty sovereignly chose a great multitude to whom he would be gracious and he determined to save them before the world began. That truth is precious to my heart because it's what the Bible teaches Grace is obligatory, total depravity. Grace is sovereign, unconditional election. Grace is provision-making. And we're in the realm here of, I prefer to call it particular redemption rather than others, limited atonement. Particular redemption. What is this about? Grace being provision-making. It's simply this, in the fullness of time. The Lord Jesus Christ died for and effectually redeemed all God's chosen ones. On Calvary's cross, Jesus did not die for everyone without distinction. He didn't die to make salvation possible for every member of humanity. It's another big religious fable that says Christ died to save everyone. No, he did not. He died to purchase atonement for the sins of every one of his own people. The Son of God came to redeem, and he redeemed all whom he came to redeem. The Son of God came to save, and he will save all those that he came to save. He suffered and died as a substitute for his own people. For God's elect, for his sheep, those who actually are saved by his blood. He died for everyone for whom he makes intercession. John 17 makes that clear. He didn't make it possible for every man or woman to be redeemed. He actually redeemed his people. Oh, that's a big claim. Do you find anything in the Bible proving that? Plenty. Isaiah 53 and 8, what is the wording there? He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Was he stricken? John 10, the verse 11, 15, 26. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for who? The sheep. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And just in case you think the sheep is everybody, verse 26, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Look at Ephesians, the chapter 5 and verse 25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, 
Nowhere in the Bible is it written that Christ died for everyone in the world, redeemed everyone in the world, made atonement for everyone in the world. This doctrine of universal redemption is one of the most hideous, blasphemous doctrines ever spawned by man. Why? Because it reduces the love of God to nothing. It perverts the justice of God. It makes a mockery of the blood of Christ. Because you're saying by that teaching, He shed blood for people and the blood didn't avail for them, wasn't good for them, worked for some, didn't work for others. That's a nonsense. It makes man his own Savior as well. The old Puritan preachers, notably John Owen, used to summarize the truth and it's a little bit profound, but it's incredibly simple as well whenever you get it, and I think you'll have no difficulty getting it. John Owen's proposal went out in three ways, and he says, one of these three has to be true, has to describe what happened at Calvary. Either Christ died for all of the sins of all men, which is what some people teach, died for all of the sins of all men. Well, if that's true, John Owen is arguing, then every man will be saved and go to heaven. For if he died for all of the sins of all men, then everybody will be in heaven. That's not the case. There are people in hell. The Bible teaches that. Multitudes more are heading there. We know that. So that can't be what happened at Calvary. Another proposal, Christ died for some of the sins of all men, and if that's the case, and if he died for some of your sins, some of my sins, but not all of them, just died for some of the sins of all men, then nobody would be saved under that scheme. Nobody could end up in heaven. For if Jesus only died for some of the sins of all men, every man would still have some sin which had no atonement made for it, and therefore everybody would be consigned to everlasting hell. So that can't be what happened on Calvary. And Jonah 1 comes to a third conclusion. Christ died for all of the sins of some men. All of the sins of some men. In which case, those some men and women from earth would be saved and would enter heaven. And that's exactly what we know to be the case. So we believe, according to the Bible, that Christ died for and redeemed God's elect. His blood, not a drop of it, was shed in vain. It was particular redemption. I've said already I'm not a fan of the term limited atonement because that's liable to give the wrong impression that there was some kind of defect in the work of Christ on Calvary, that he kind of aimed higher than he actually achieved the atonement of Christ. Well, it is limited in scope but not in efficacy. It was limited deliberately in design, but it is not limited in merit. It is finished in its totality, all done, nothing more can or should be done. Our Savior's limited atonement was and is the effectual redemption of His people. The issue of the gospel is not just the bare fact that Jesus died, but how He actually died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15 and 3, and He died sovereignly. I laid down my life, John 10, 15, John 10, 17. He died as a substitute for the transgression of my 
people. Isaiah 53 and 8. He died as a satisfaction to God. I have found a ransom, a satisfaction paying the price for our sin. Job 33, 24. Mark 10, 45. He died successfully. He shall not feel. Isaiah 42, 4 says, and neither did he. Grace is obligatory. Total depravity, it is sovereign, unconditional election, it is provision-making, particular redemption. Grace is efficacious. And we're talking in the realm of irresistible grace here. What do we mean by that, that grace is efficacious? Salvation is worked in God's people by the irresistible power and grace of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus has bled on Calvary. He has made a covering for the sins of his people. He has died for his sheep. And the Holy Spirit, his task is to go out there and effectually call every chosen, every redeemed sinner, every single last one of the sheep, causing them to come to faith and repentance in Christ. The psalmist said in Psalm 65 and 4, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causes to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Here's how it is, having chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world, having provided the ransom price for our salvation on Calvary's cross through the work of a son, God sends the Holy Spirit to our hearts to a Apply the benefits of Christ's finished work to us to convince us, to convict us, to call us, to convert us, to convey faith and repentance to us. That's his work, and that's how it works. Psalm 65 and 4, Psalm 110 and 3, John 6, 63. This is the work of God, but we have another religious fable popping up at this point. And some people think, well, you know, the Holy Spirit of God is doing all He can to save everybody. He's doing all He can. That's not true. That is not true. There are multitudes on earth to whom the Spirit of God has not even sent His Word. The Bible says nothing of the Spirit trying to reprove, trying to convince, trying. Oh dear, I'm being a bit of a failure here because it's not working. He's never like that. He's not trying to regenerate. Rather, the Bible declares in John 6 and 63, it is the Spirit that quickeneth. He doesn't try to quicken. He does it. The flesh profiteth nothing. If he purposes to do a work, then that work he performs. In other words, he doesn't attempt to save a person and then, having tried to see them save, stand back into the shadows and he's helpless here because that attempt is going to end in miserable failure because that soul that he tried to save is going to slip through his fingers and bounce down into hell. No, it doesn't happen like that. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. I don't know that, but I do know this. All of those for whom Christ died shall come to Him for mercy. Not one of them will go through this life uncalled or unconverted. Yes, they shall come. Tis heaven's decree. They shall to Jesus bow. This precious shall come, conquered me, 
and gives me comfort now. Final thought. Grace is obligatory. Total depravity. Can't save ourselves. We need grace. Grace is sovereign. Only God can choose and has the control over who he saves and who he doesn't. Grace is provision-making, so it made that provision on Calvary. Grace is efficacious. It doesn't hit the floor in failure. It swings in with power and does everything God intended it to do. Grace is lasting. And we're talking about the perseverance of the saints here. And so we are completing this acronym of gospel, graces, obligatory, sovereign, provision-making, efficacious, and also lasting. What is this teaching at this point? It's teaching this. Every believer, not the hypocrite, but every believer, shall persevere in faith because all who trust Christ are infallibly preserved by the grace of God. Every true believer, every genuinely saved soul shall continue in the grace of God. I'm not saying they don't fall, stumble, go wayward for a time, but they're preserved, they're sealed, they're kept by the grace and the power of God himself. So all who are saved by grace are saved forever. We're talking here about the perseverance of the saints. Some call it the eternal security of believers Do we find that in the Word? Well, we read it this morning in John 10 and 28, and I give unto them eternal life. Not temporary salvation, eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He's covering all corners there. Philippians 1 and 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will also perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. doesn't stop. First Peter 1 and 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The eternal security of believers. I believe it because the Word teaches it. There are four bold challenges of faith. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39, and it draws attention to this doctrine of the saints' perseverance right to the end, Or to put it another way, a better way, God's preservation of His people right through to His heavenly kingdom. The four challenges, you'll know them very well in Romans 8, 31, 39 are these. If God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 31. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Verse 33. Who is he that condemneth? Verse 34. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. In the light of all of this, Give God alone all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. That's the design in all of this. Give Him the praise, all the honor, all the glory for His great grace to us great sinners through His great Son. That's the basic reason why God has done all that He has done to glorify His name. And you can find that in John chapter 17. It was not from the creature salvation took place. The whole was to God, to the praise of His grace, and all to His glory shall tend by and by to accomplish the lifting of Jesus on high. And so today in conclusion, what we say is simply this, suffer a sinner whose heart overflows, 
loving a Savior to tell what he knows, once more to tell it, would I embrace? I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. I really do like this acronym for gospel. Grace is obligatory. Grace is sovereign. Grace is provision-making. Grace is efficacious. Grace is lasting. Praise God for His great grace.